how do we define where we came from? Can it be found in a DNA test? Why is the pull of knowing our biological roots so powerful? And what happens when they're not what we expected? Today, we'll talk with genealogist Jennifer Mendelson, who's been involved in some of the most fascinating and high-profile searches for biological family, and also some accidental findings that are, shall we say, unexpected. We'll explore some beautiful stories and also some that didn't go as well. How do we decide what defines who we are? What is the real meaning of roots and family? If you're thinking of buying a DNA test or charting your family tree with online tools, you'll want to listen to today's Baggage Check. Welcome. I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this is Baggage Check, mental health talk and advice, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. It is not a show about luggage. Incidentally, it is also not a show about the ins and outs of jambalaya. Hey there, this is me adding a little something right as this episode is dropping. Our guest today just had a major announcement, which she was not allowed to reveal during our interview. But the news went public right as we were publishing this, so I get to be the happy bearer of this news today. And that is her brand new partnership with the Center for Jewish History, where they have begun a really special initiative called the DNA Reunion Project, which seeks to provide free DNA testing kits and genealogical consultation to all Holocaust survivors and their children. This is so exciting and relates directly to some of the remarkable stories we'll talk about today. For more information, you can visit cjh.org. Again, that's cjh, as in Center for Jewish History, dot org, cjh.org. Okay, on to the show. So I am so glad to be able to talk to Jennifer Mendelson today. She and I go back quite a ways. We've been friends for a long time, and she's a true multi-talent. She has a background in journalism, but then almost accidentally, if I'm correct, and I'd love to hear more about this, she stumbled into genealogy, and now it's her passion. She's initiated all kinds of genealogical research and projects, whether it's DNA genealogy or paper genealogy, and I thought she'd be a wonderful person to begin to explore this topic with. I know a lot of us are thinking about our roots and the implications of understanding more about our ancestors and where we came from. And I know a lot of us might have been gifted or are considering using a DNA test or a membership to an online site for researching your family tree. And it's getting to be quite popular. We also, though, know that it can be a really heavy topic and that it can come with many complications. And so I'm really glad to get this time today to start thinking through all of this, especially with someone who knows so much. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to chat with you. Wonderful to have you too. So why don't we start with how you kind of stumbled into this? Because this definitely was not your first career, though it no doubt used some of your skills from your previous career. 
Absolutely. It was kind of a, you know, it was what I was looking for all along, but I just didn't know I was looking for it. I've told the story many times and I feel, always feel obligated to point out that, you know, there's, I feel like there's always one in every family, that one kid who's like the one who, you know, sidles up to all the old people at every family gathering and wants to know everything about, you know, who were grandma's sisters again? And what was the name of that? That was not me. Um, that was my brother. Um, who may be familiar to some of your listeners because he turned his obsession with genealogy into a best-selling book in which he investigated what happened to our family during the Holocaust. Um, mm -hmm. But genealogy was totally my brother Daniel Mendelssohn's thing. It was not mine at all. And as you said, that changed almost entirely accidentally. And there were it was sort of two happy accidents, actually. The first was that something I saw posted on Facebook led to a random Google search. And that Google search led me to the 1940 census, which I had never mm. seen before. Mm -hmm. And specifically, it led me to the entry for cousins of my mother. And as a journalist, it was sort of just interesting to me because stories about people and information about people was always fascinating to me. And here mm -hmm. was sort of this like, jackpot of interesting information about my family. Like it said their occupations and where they lived and where their parents were born and where they had lived five years earlier. And I just thought, oh, this is so cool. I never knew that like, I don't know, why would I ever have reason to look at the census before? Mm -hmm. And it just piqued my interest. And it was literally just a random Google search I did one day. But then I was like, oh, this is so cool. I see my mother's cousins will let me find my, you know, my grandparents and let me find my great grandparents. And, you know, as the story goes, the next thing I knew, I was looking up my grandmother's first cousin's brother-in-law's hairdresser. I just like <laughs> fell like endlessly and hopelessly down the rabbit hole. I just thought this was so cool. Mm -hmm. But the second happy accident was that, so I joined Ancestry and I, you know, had literally just started like noodling around on ancestry and i realized that you know though my brother had done a lot of the genealogical heavy lifting i realized that he had done much of it in the pre-computer era and like oh, yeah i could do now so much at sort of the touch of a button and and that seemed really cool and interesting to me but it's important to know that when i talk about genealogy for me personally, three of my four grandparents were immigrants and the fourth mm -hmm. was the American born daughter of newly arrived immigrants. Mm -hmm. So when I was in that very first process of building my tree on ancestry, I was utterly focused on the story of late 19th and 20th century immigrants coming, Jewish immigrants coming to the US. And mm -hmm. so when I work on ancestry, I am looking at naturalization documents and ships manifests, and it's all mm -hmm. about that great wave of immigration. And that's mm -hmm. important because two weeks after that Google search, I was in the car with my husband's elderly 95 year old Holocaust survivor grandmother. Mm -hmm. And because I had been thinking so much about the great wave of immigration, I was just trying to make conversation with her. We were like driving to a graduation party and 
she was somebody who she and her husband were each the sole survivors in their family. And that is because they were the only ones to leave Poland. They fled to the Soviet Union and survived the war doing forced labor. But Mm -hmm. I had always assumed that everyone else in their family had stayed. And that is why, sadly, everyone else in their family was murdered. Oh, my goodness. So what I said to her that day in the car was, I just was curious. I said, Mama, when you were growing up, was there a lot of buzz about going to America? Because Mm -hmm. I knew from my own family that so many people left Eastern Europe during that great wave. And she said, she she looked at me with her typical imperiousness and was like, no, not really. Mm. And then she said, like, as an afterthought, well, you know that my mother had two older sisters who went to Chicago before World War (gasps) One. And I just like, I always say that in the cartoon retelling of the story, that's the point at which like my eyes bugged horizontally out of my head. Because <laughs> I was just like, what do you mean your mother had two sisters who went to Chicago? Like, because immediately I just thought if your mother had two sisters that went to Chicago, you have family. Like this right. is a woman who had lost everybody. Right. I said, Mama, what happened to them? What What are you talking about? She said, well, the war broke out and my mother was supposed to join them. And because the war broke out, she never was able to come. And I said, yeah, but what happened to the sisters in Chicago? And she got very uncharacteristically quiet. And she said, I don't know. Wow. And I was like, she said somehow they lost touch after the war. And she said when she finally came to the U.S. in the 50s, and it just breaks my heart because she said, I, I I wrote a letter to the one guy from our hometown who I thought might know where my aunts were, and I never heard back from him. Oh, um, and she said, I later heard that he had died. And so like when you're a newly arrived Polish immigrant in the mm-hmm. 50s, you don't speak English and there's no internet, like what was she supposed, and she didn't know their last names. That was a very important detail. So I, I just, I was like, mama, we've, we have to find them. Like, this is crazy. Like you have family here somewhere. So to make a very long story short, I spent Mm -hmm. the next two weeks, like completely in a fog. Like I lived at my computer. I had no Mm -hmm. idea what I was doing. I had never done genealogical research before, but I had been a reporter for 25 years. So I just was like, okay, Two Polish sisters came mm-hmm. to the U.S. before World War One. They lived in Chicago. I'm going to find them. And to make a very, very, very long story short, I found them. Oh my they goodness. never went to Chicago because the very first thing you learn in genealogy is a lot of the stories you hear turn out not to be true. Yes. But two weeks later, I went back to her assisted living community and I said, Mama, you need to sit down. I said, remember you told me that you had two aunts who came to America? She said, yes. Mm -hmm. I said, Mama, you have three living first cousins. Wow. Unbelievable. That, you know, it was crazy. These were her mother's older sisters. So I thought their children would surely be long dead because she was 95. But it turned out that one of them had married late in life. And Mm -hmm. she had three daughters still alive. And we reunited them and it was the most extraordinary thing ever. Oh my goodness. And and then I guess the second part of the story is that a couple months later, I wrote a magazine article about Mm -hmm. this experience and how special it was. And Mm -hmm. after that story ran, a friend of the family reached out to me and said, I read your article and 
you seem to know how to do genealogical research. I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you can help us. My father was adopted in 1928 in Brooklyn, and we've always wanted to find his birth family. And mm -hmm. I was just like flush with one success under my belt. I was like, sure, <laughs> I'll find your birth family. But I did. And I basically just did the same thing again. And it he found out that he had two living half sisters and I connected them. And they later told me it changed their lives. So I was like, oh, my goodness, I think I want to keep doing this. So yeah, that's the story. I mean, it's such a gift when I imagine they would have never expected to be able to have that, you know, like the the idea of being able to suddenly learn that you have living first cousins and also the meaning that these folks were still out there and the survival of people with whom you share roots. It's just so meaningful. And I can imagine how this work really starts to perpetuate itself because you're giving a gift to people and it also it really does. Yeah. And it's so and journalistic though, too. It's so, reporter like to have to track down these things and be good with detail and be able to investigate. It's that skill set that I think so many of us don't necessarily have to the same extent, which is what makes it hit a dead end for a lot of people. Yeah, I give a talk called Think Like a Reporter, um, mm -hmm. because I feel like I owe much of my success as a genealogist to my training as a journalist, because you you have to be focused like a laser beam on the information trail. And I see all the time where other people get lost. And yeah. it's it's the places where a reporter does not get lost because I've been taught to follow an information trail. Yes. Um, so yeah, that's definitely part of it. But when you talk about the power of it, I mean, I have used the phrase and not to make myself sound more important than I am, but when I did that reunion for my husband's grandmother, I later wrote that I felt like I had bent the space-time continuum yeah. because it was, she just never imagined that at 95, she would learn anything new. Yeah. And for their part, the cousins that I connected her with, like so many people and understandably just assumed that all their relatives of their mothers had died because yeah. That was the natural assumption. There would have been no way that they would have known that this one little old lady had fled to Russia and, you know, lived in places that don't even have names um, during the yeah. war. And they just never would have found each other. So there is sort of a, a strange compulsion piece to it, for lack of a better word, because mm -hmm. I sometimes feel like it's like a curse and a gift that I know yeah. how to do this because I want to help everybody because yeah. I feel like they would have never known how to find one another. And mm -hmm. I do know how to do that now. And sometimes I feel like I do. I feel like I just want to help everybody because it can be so powerful. And there are so many people who need help. Yeah. So yeah. And yet I imagine there are certain times where what people are hoping for is not necessarily what they get, or maybe even what they're just expecting to be confirmed, something that they had taken as truth turns out not to be true. You know, in the case of your family, it's like there was this big blank space to be filled in. And it was so beautiful to fill it in. I think a lot of what I hear about sometimes in the therapy room is it's not a blank space. Here's the story that I have found meaning from. And what happens 
when further research or just a sort of giving a DNA test to my sister or an ancestry subscription to a family member as a lark, turns out the story that I found meaning in is now taken from me. It's now yep. not the story I expected. It's not as beautiful. I've heard the phrase genealogical bewilderment mm. used, mm-hmm. um, and it can be very, very psychologically unmooring yeah. to one story that pops into my head when we talk about this, and I feel like this is sort of the most benign example of genealogical bewilderment, but it just shows you how sort of following the trail can change the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend, have a close friend, who we actually, we helped him, I helped him track down his mother's birth father um, uh, from whom she had been estranged. Um, And that was a very meaningful experience. But in the aftermath of that, he mentioned that on his father's side, his grandfather had come to the US as a little boy, as an immigrant from, um, from the Russian empire, with his widowed mother, so my mm-hmm. friend's great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. And he said to me one day, you know, I was always curious, you know, my great-grandmother was a widow, she was traveling with these small children. I always wondered who met her, like who would, who did she come to when she finally came? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, that's so easy, I can find that for you in 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Except for the fact that when I looked it up, the person who met her was the great grandfather who was definitely not dead. Uh, Um, And on further investigation, not only was he not dead, but he appears to have started a second family in New York City. Oh my goodness. So again, I just like, it seems to me, you know, was he traumatized by this information? Mm -hmm. No, but it certainly created an interesting ripple to the story. So I feel like stories like that are sort of at one end where it's like, Mm -hmm. whoa, things are not what I thought. And at the other end, we have people like the writer Danny Shapiro, who wrote a very Mm well-known memoir about the experience of being completely unmoored Mm -hmm. by learning accidentally from a DNA test that she took for fun because her husband was interested in genealogy and was like, I'm buying one. Do you want one? too. And she learned in her late 50s that her beloved father was not her biological father. And more and more and more people are having that sort of unmooring experience by taking especially DNA tests. I mean, you know, the 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 great grandparent story was just on paper, but you know, DNA is uncovering so many, so many secrets that people thought they would have been able to bury. Yes. Yes. And they couldn't have anticipated the technology. You know, when your mother told you this story about who your birth father was, she didn't necessarily realize, okay, someday my kid is going to have evidence right in front of them that that's not the case. And of course, you had a hand in Danny's story and being able to find the roots of that. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. And I know she has a podcast of her own. And they're making it into a movie, a feature film. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there can be beauty even in finding out these surprise type of things. But I also think in a way, it's probably changing how we think about what it means to be who we are. You know, I mean, part of what I'm curious about, especially for folks who are adoptees or were conceived with donor sperm 20 years ago or whatever it might be, and have always lived with the idea that their biological roots are not part of their daily story of their identity. And so 
one thing that strikes me is this paradox where on the one hand we crave this information about our DNA and our ancestry so much. And then on the other hand, there are real ways where it's not necessarily who we are. And we aren't our biological parents. We might be completely different. We might have completely different values. And so I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit, this sort of push and pull. We need to know our roots in a way, but is there a point where we put too much emphasis on that and take away from the fact that, hey, you know, the family I grew up with, even if it turns out we're not genetically related, that's still my family. I mean, I see it all the time. I, I feel like when you start to walk in this world, you understand that there is an overwhelming desire, well, for adoptees and people who who know that they have biological family who is unknown, mm -hmm. the hunger that I see to know who those people are mm -hmm. can be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are some adoptees who have no interest whatsoever. I, I see that. But mm -hmm. overwhelmingly, what I see is a it is just when you grow up knowing that the people who raised you, you know, don't share DNA with you and mm -hmm. therefore don't look like you. There is so much curiosity um, mm -hmm. just to know who are the people whose DNA I share and what's mm -hmm. their story? And even just to see a picture of mm -hmm. them, sometimes that's all people want. They just desperately want to know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also, what I've learned walking in this world is that there is no one size fits all story here. Mm -hmm. um, I see, you know, people who come to the realization as Danny does, and as she writes so beautifully about throughout the whole book, that she has now come to terms with the fact that the father she knew did not contribute half her DNA, but was absolutely her father mm -hmm. in every possible way. Mm -hmm. You know, the man who donated her sperm, she has sort of a lovely and cordial relationship with, but he is not her father. Mm -hmm. He is not the one who taught her to ride a bike and sang mm -hmm. her lullabies and brought her to synagogue and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, all that good stuff. I see people who have very close and intense relationships with their biological family once they find them. Mm -hmm. um, and immediately feel more comfortable with their biological family than perhaps they did with the family that raised them. It's, it goes across the gamut. You know, I always tell people before embarking on these sorts of searches, you know, I have seen everything from warm and wonderful acceptance of newfound biological family to quite literally cease and desist letters. Um, you know, yeah. not every birth parent is interested in having a relationship with the child that they place for adoption for a host of reasons. And yeah. that's a, an awkward, it can be awkward for the, the person searching, but it's also a valid response. And a, the birth parent has the right not to want to have a relate, you know, I think in our, yeah. in our heads and our sort of folklore, it's like, oh, mm -hmm. everything will be wonderful and warm and fuzzy. And it's not always like that at all. Right. And I think if anything, maybe it points to the idea that ultimately our story is our story and we get to incorporate what matters to us and we get to find meaning in the places and the people that we truly feel have that meaning and that it doesn't have to be 
hey, you found out this, now you've got to do this in terms of your roots or your ancestry. Because the truth is, we get to define how we view ourselves and we get to define our family, really, in every sense of the word. And I certainly work with a lot of folks who might be going through estrangement with their family and, and part of their identity starts to develop a family that is not the family they grew up with. They can start to define their family in different ways. It's so meaningful and it makes me wonder, you know, even just all of these complicated issues, what would you advise someone who is maybe considering starting this process? So maybe they come from a family where, you know, they vaguely know up to their great grandparents on each side and they think it would kind of be cool to either do some DNA research or some paper research online, family tree types of research. How does somebody even begin this? And are there maybe warning signs? You know, how hard do you push? You really want your your mom to join this site or take this test and your family members pushing back. Are there ways that you decide that you respect the silence of certain people involved? You know, I feel like it's so fascinating and it has the potential to be so meaningful. And then I also feel like we need to be mindful. We need to go in with eyes wide open and we need to be respectful of the people in our lives that either might just not share our interest in it or might have something that they don't want to be known. It's so tricky. So for somebody starting out with this, they say, hey, maybe I'll buy this for my parents for Christmas or something. I mean, what kind of things should they be keeping in mind? Well, it's interesting because I feel like this conversation um, that we're having right at this moment would have been wildly different even just a year or two ago Mm because I feel like there is more understanding now Mm -hmm. because so many of these stories have become public of the sorts of explosive family secrets that can come out of DNA Mm -hmm. tests um, that I think it's it clearly isn't like universally known, but it's more widely right. known right. that they can have this effect. So obviously it's very important for people to take a test with the full understanding that it might very well reveal information that you were not expecting. Mm-hmm. I think they all have a disclaimer on that now, mm-hmm. but I think so many people are like, oh, that won't be me. That's just it. They might know it happens to others, but that's different than really right. believing it's a possibility for them. Yeah. I, ha- I have, this wasn't from a DNA test, but I have a dear friend who her mother passed away in the last year. And after her mother died, she got a phone call from a woman. Her mother had placed a child for adoption before getting married. Her mother had had a relationship with her birth daughter, mm-hmm. but made her swear that she would never tell her children from her marriage until after she died. Mm-hmm. So once she died, this woman half-sister reached out to my friend and my friend texted me, I'm on an episode of The Lost Family. Like she just, you know, she she just couldn't believe that it was happening to her. Yeah. But it does. And it It does. There there are an increasing number of people who are having this. So I also want to make clear, this might sound strange for somebody who relies so deeply on having people DNA test, but... I am not interested in forcing a reluctant tester to test. I have Mm -hmm. zero interest in doing that. Mm -hmm. If people have reasons, whatever they are, for not being comfortable putting their DNA in a commercial database, I'm done. I'm out Mm -hmm. and not in the business of pushing it on anyone. And it's unethical. Like it's, you know, we have a code that we operate by and 
people, you can only get DNA with informed consent. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's really important that people, before they spit in that vial, think, what if this leads somewhere I was not intending? Am I ready for that? Am I okay with that? And I actually occasionally see people who say no. Like, yeah. they're just like, I don't know, my grandfather was a bit of a wild card. I don't think I want to go mm-hmm. there. I don't want to know what's out there. I don't want to know if I have relatives I'm not expecting. And that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but for some people, it can change lives. It can, you know, yeah. I have seen that over and over again. So I always personally, I've tested, I've, mm-hmm. um, I continue to believe that it's can do a lot of good. I work specifically now in the world of Holocaust survivors, and Mm -hmm. it can be, for some of them, it can be the only way to get information about themselves. And therefore, it's crucial that others test so that we have a robust database. So it's, I encourage people to test, but if people have reservations, that's great. And they should be respected. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm so glad to hear you say that because I think at some point it can become like a project in terms of we want these answers no matter what. I've got something I'm searching for and I am doing the investigation and let's fill in this blank and all we need to do is get this person to take this test and we lose the human aspect of it because it's so intellectually curious and it's so there's that need like you said almost a compulsion let's find these answers because it can be so rewarding but if someone along the way that we want answers from has reservations they're still a human being and they're not the cog in the wheel of getting to the point of these answers right and those you know those can be competing interests right your desire to know and someone else's desire not to participate in your knowledge journey are both valid and that can be hard to reconcile. Yes. Especially if someone has grown up with a story that was assumed that it would never really be told. And and I am curious if maybe this will change some of the ways that parents maybe tell their children about certain things. I know it certainly changed some of the attitudes about adoption in terms of, hey, the way that we tell this story is part of my child's identity from the beginning. And the embracing of knowing more about the circumstances and those kinds of things as compared to a generation or two ago when it was so secretive. Do you think that if there are unusual circumstances in people's upbringings that we're going to get to a point where parents are going to be aware that it's going to come out. So maybe they'll be more likely to be able and be willing to tell the kids from the beginning, hey, this is your story. And it's not something you have to be ashamed of. And it's not something you have to be blindsided by at age 30 when you buy a random DNA test. This is your story and you can own it now. Do you think that might happen? Definitely. I mean, I feel like there was just a question in the last week to the ethicist in the New York Times magazine about, Mm -hmm. I can't remember the exact scenario. It was like a sibling knew that his father wasn't his sibling's birth father. And was he obligated to tell that? I might not be remembering Mm -hmm. that exactly right. But the answer pointed out eventually everyone's going to be able to figure this out, you know, with the ubiquitousness of DNA tests. And I feel like that is sort of bubbling up into our cultural understanding. And, you know, I think maybe some parents might be seeing this out there and realizing it's time to let their children know that they were donor conceived, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Um, And maybe they 
thought that they could keep silent forever. Right. Um, right. But, or some donors. Um, and that's a whole other conversation. Sperm donors, for instance, who never expected that anyone would be contacting them. And, you know, it was a different era. And now what's the meaning of that? That maybe there are 15 biological children out there. It's certainly yeah. very complicated. You know, I, I must ask too, I imagine when people get findings that they're not expecting or that they're unmoored by, the word unmoored that you use, I think is so, so eloquent in terms of how it, it describes this. Are some of these DNA tests, are there ever mistakes? Because I'm sure that's sort of a go-to first response that people have. Well, it must be wrong. We grew up together. We have the same parents. This is my biological sister. This must be wrong. Is that something that is ever seen or is that pretty much not a thing? Pretty much not. The, the important thing to remember is that commercial DNA tests have two parts. They have the ethnicity pie charts that everybody is sort of familiar with, where, you know, the commercial says the guy grew up thinking he was German and he traded his lederhosen for a kilt. Um, <laughs> and then there is the match list, which is the people with whom you share DNA, mm -hmm. um, ranked in order of closeness to you by the amount of DNA that you share. And the ethnicity estimate can have small errors in it. Mm -hmm. Error, I shouldn't use the word error. Um, ethnicity estimates are not measuring something empirical in your DNA. There is not like mm -hmm. it's, I always say, it's not like taking the pH of a liquid. There is not something in your DNA that will tell you you are 78% from the Iberian Peninsula. Okay. They are estimates derived from comparing you to people who are self-reported with certain ancestries. So when people come back 0.5% Papua New Guinea, you, mm -hmm. know, you know, you shouldn't be then like traveling to Papua <laughs> New Guinea to find your aunt, you know, it could be just a statistical error. Mm -hmm. However, what I always tell people, if you are seeing huge discordancies at the continent level, mm -hmm. meaning you always grew up believing you were 100%, say, Ashkenazi Jewish, and there is zero Ashkenazi Jewish in your estimates, mm -hmm. that is not an error. That is likely a mismatch between what you understood to be your history. And those sort of huge discrepancies can't be explained away. Got it. But the second part, the DNA match list, if you are sharing huge amounts of DNA with strangers, that is not an accident mm -hmm. and that is not an error. That mm -hmm. is because your genealogical tree does not match your biological tree. Um, if you get a parent-child match on one of these tests, mm -hmm. that is not a mistake. And I can tell you from experience, I have seen so many people call the companies convinced that there is some mm -hmm. sort of mistake and then they retest at the next company and get the same exact result. Yeah. Um, it, 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 true errors on these tests are like unicorns, like one in a million. They're okay. it just, it's not widespread. Yeah. So something to be prepared for. And I think people, it might be part of their process to say, well, let me double check, let me triple check, because they need to come to terms with it over a period of time. But it is good to know, because I think a lot of us don't really know much about these tests, except for a commercial or our coworker did it and found out this kind of fun fact. And actually, that leads me to a final question in terms of some of the fun facts. You know, I know from folks that have done these that there are all kinds of things that come up that 
that are characteristics, you are more likely to have this certain trait. Uh, does your piece smell like asparagus after you've eaten asparagus? And some of it though, of course, can be more serious in terms of health concerns. And I wonder, do those tend to not have mistakes as well? So for instance, if someone were to find out something medically related from some of these tests about whether it be their predisposition to something, is that generally something to take seriously and incorporate your doctor's opinion about? Or is it something that maybe sometimes there are fluky things that you don't really know to what extent that's really meaningful or true? Well, first of all, only a subset of them provide medical information. Mm -hmm. And I actually make a point of staying out of that piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, but I can tell you that a close friend and colleague of mine in the genealogical community learned accidentally from a 23andMe test that she was a carrier of the BRCA gene. Oh, and wow. because of that, went and got tested and actually discovered that she had very, very early breast cancer that never oh. would have been detected wow. um, because she was young. She was in her 30s. She had no family history. No, she wasn't due for her first mammogram and it saved her life. So, Amazing. you know, there is valuable information to be gleaned um, mm -hmm. uh, or can be. I just, I, I, like I said, that's not my expertise. So I stay out of it. If you see something troubling or concerning on the medical side, mm -hmm. I would urge you to follow up on it. That's my, my take on that. Follow yeah. up with someone who knows what they're talking about and can tell you, oh, it's nothing to worry about, yeah. um, you know. Yeah. I mean, I'm told that I'm at risk for lactose intolerance, which can apparently manifest late in life. So I'm sort mm. of waiting with my tub of ice cream, hoping <laughs> that it's not true. But the um, almond ice cream is really good too, made from <laughs> almond milk, I will say. And there's coconut milk ice cream as well. So yes, yes. Well, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. And I feel like we've only been able to scratch the surface of some of this stuff. But I know there'll probably be more questions to come and maybe we can chat again. But it really seems like the bottom line is that we all have the right to our own story and we all have the right to find out what matters to us in terms of where we came from. And we have the technology now in ways that we never did before. And there are a lot of ways that it can be overwhelming. So we have to go in with eyes wide open, but ultimately it can be empowering because I think the truth very often is empowering, even when it causes some upset initially. Absolutely. I, what, what I, what's been echoing in the back of my head as we're talking is I'm working on a case right now, an incredible case where two adult adoptees in Poland, both around 80 years old, um, discovered each other through a DNA test a year mm -hmm. ago, a discovered that they were full sisters oh, wow. to total strangers to one another and B discovered that they are um, Jewish by birth, which neither of them knew. Oh my goodness. Um, and as I've told the story, you know, discovering that you were abandoned on a roadside in the summer of 1942, mm -hmm. thinking that you were not Jewish is one story. And then finding out that you were abandoned on a roadside in the summer of 1942 in Poland and learning that you were Jewish is a very different story. Yes. But one of the, one of the women told her granddaughters, um, and it just gets me every time that every night she says she dreams that her mother's face will come to her so she can see her mother's face. Um, and oh we have, my partner and I have been working with their DNA results to identify their parents. And we are very, very close to showing her her mother's <gasps> face. And oh. I just, 
you know, I think about this old woman just wanting to see the face of her mother. And that's really what it's all about for a lot of people. So I, that's incredible. That gave me chills. What amazing work and what meaningful work. So I just have to say thank you too, not just for being here, but for everything that you're doing out there in the world to help people feel connected in the ways that they want to be connected. I think it's impossible to exaggerate just how huge this is in people's lives when it can make such a connection that they didn't have before. So thank you so much. Thank you for joining me today. Once again, I'm Dr. Andrea Bonnier, and this has been Baggage Check, with new episodes every Tuesday and Friday. Join us on Instagram at Baggage Check Podcast to give your take on upcoming topics and guests. And why not tell your chatty coworker where to find us? Our original music is by Jordan Cooper, cover art by Danielle Merity, and my studio security is provided by Buster the Dog. Until next time, take good care.